0: Welcome back to the program. In 1982, at the height of the feminist movement, Helen Gurley Brown published a book entitled Having It All, Love, Success, Sex, and Money. A popular TV movie of the time, a comedy. Also entitled Having It All had Diane Cannon with a high-powered job on both coasts and a husband on each coast as well. Oprah has said that women can have it all, but not all at once. And now, 31 years after Helen Gurley Brown's book, the debate still rages on. Sheryl Sandberg has recently talked about the efforts of women in the workplace to have it all. And now Deborah Spar, the president of Barnard College, takes a fresh look at what is possible and not. For women of the 21st century, Deborah Spar is the current president of Barnard. She had a long teaching career at Harvard Business School, where she was a professor of business administration and senior associate dean for faculty research and development. She graduated magna cum laude from the Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and earned her doctorate from Harvard in government. It is my pleasure to welcome Deborah Spar to the program to talk about her newest book, *Wonder Women: Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection*. Deborah Spar, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Delight to have you here.
0: Is this a problem, the problems that that women are facing today in trying to have it all, to be wonder women? Is this a problem that is different for those at at the top of the economic ladder, those with educations, those that have careers and that are juggling that with family and all the other responsibilities? Is that fundamentally different from, from other women further down the economic ladder?
1: Well, you know, it's a great question and it's a really important question. And and I think the answer is somewhat yes and somewhat no. So so clearly, the, a lot of the problems and the issues that I'm describing in the book and that most of, of the similar books have tackled, these are problems that do primarily confront women who have a lot of education, have high-powered jobs, and quite frankly, have the luxury of deciding whether or not they want to stay in the workforce. Those these problems are different from those that confront a single mom with three kids who's just trying to hold her family together and get, get food on the table. So the worlds are very different. But one of the things that struck me both writing the book and, and even more so in, in getting women's responses to the book has been that women kind of across the socioeconomic spectrum are are feeling these same these same problems of frustration, of expectations, and sadly of guilt and of failure. And I think these are problems that really cut across. Women feel guilty, it seems to me, regardless of where they work and how much they make and, and how many kids they have. That seems to be sort of a proverbial quest, a problem right now. And that's one that I think we really need to tackle.
0: Is this something that is true for those, that came of, those women that came of age around the time of the feminist movement? Is it different for a younger generation today, for millennials today, for the students well, that you see at Barnard?
1: Yet, no, sadly, uh, and this is really the most depressing part here, I think that the millennial generation, although they're a fabulous generation in so many re- respects, they are struggling with even more expectations than those that face the baby boomers because, you know, at the risk of of being too trivial about this, you know, women of my age, the baby boomer age, we were the first generation that was really expected to go out into the workforce and to have a career and still be wives, mothers, and homemakers. If you look at the kids who are in high school and college now, look at the young women, they are expected to have careers, be the breadwinners, still be wives, mothers, and housekeepers, but they're also expected to be um, excellent athletes, which was certainly not an an expectation for, for girls historically. They are expected or think they are expected to save the world and start their own NGOs and be entrepreneurial, we've actually added to the range of expectations that young women face without taking anything off the table.
0: As we look at these problems today, to what extent is this a problem of the way feminism evolved in the 70s and 80s?
1: Well, let me me just Begin by answering that by saying these are fixable problems. You know that's the good news. There's a lot of problems out there: climate change, the Middle East, whose, whose solutions are just <laughs> confounding. These are problems, but they're fixable ones. So I, th- you know, I think we really can be quite quite optimistic here, and I think to some extent we can see. The current situation is having arisen out of uh, out of feminism, but I think it's more just having risen arisen out of society. You know, nobody ever sat in a, in a room and said, "Gee, what can we do to to really confuse young women and to baffle them with too many expectations?" I think it's it's just a, a, an aggregation, a combination of lots and lots of good intentions and lots and lots of high hopes. So it's great that young girls are playing soccer. Um, What's not great is that we translate you can play soccer to, gee, you should also be captain of the team and, and a superstar. You know, it's great that young people today want to save the world. I mean, that's a fabulous thing. What's bad is when that gets translated into the expectation of, and I see this in the, the kids who apply to my college, the expectation that they somehow feel that they need to start their NGO, their own NGO, before they're even 18. So, I, you know, I don't think there's any one moment where this went wrong or any group that can be blamed. It's just by trying to do the right thing for girls and women. We, you know, we collectively, society, as parents and teams, Teachers and media and writers and everything, we've just translated these opportunities into expectations. And I think the moment has come now consciously to, to pull back a little bit and say, hang on, you know, we have great opportunities, that's, that's the good news, but we have to make sure that we're not giving our kids a message that just because things are available to them, they somehow must be compelled to grab each and every one of these opportunities and then excel at it.
0: You make the point that a lot of this started from these super women myths that that really grew out of the 70s using as as sort of maybe the penultimate example the the Charlie Girl commercial.
1: Right, right. Well, and it's not just Charlie Girl. I mean, one of the things that was so interesting to me when I I wrote the book was really realizing how much I had been shaped by all the the television I watched in the 70s. And I'm not a big TV watcher, but if you look at the images of professional women that started to emerge in television in the 1970s and that are still out there today, you know, again, the good news is that we see women being cops and surgeons and detectives and, and all of these these very intriguing careers. The bad news is that we see these women still looking like models, managing to have, you know, husbands and children without ever really getting frustrated by that combination of things. So pretty much every um, professional woman we see on TV is a Wonder Woman. You know, she's doing things that real people don't pull off quite so easily in real life. And it's easy to dismiss this because, of of course, TV is fiction. It's not real. But if if young women are constantly being pummeled by these images, not only on television, but in movies, from magazine stands, they they start to set their expectations higher and higher so that they, they begin to feel that if they're not running the corporate law firm and putting the perfect dinner on the table and keeping the perfect home and being totally sexy all of the time, that they're somehow falling short.
0: I want to stay with pop culture for a moment because as we we deal with nostalgia today and we look back at things, for example, like Mad Men and, and see the struggles that women went through and young women today see that, to what extent does that infuse them with a greater responsibility for the roles that they have today?
1: Well, that's a that's a good question, and and just to stick with Mad Men for for a second, you know, it's it's interesting if you go back and at least look at that way that era is being portrayed, and which to some extent is true, with the women were were very constricted in terms of what they could do professionally, but they also didn't actually have that many expectations on the home front. You know, the women in that show and at that time period, they weren't uber parenting their children, uh, they weren't setting up playdates and and making all of their art projects. So it, the contrast there is um, is quite revealing. And then if you propel to the to the current state, I would say that that women and again all people. Have this vast array of choices before them, which really does create the responsibility to choose wisely. And I don't think that means that there's a perfect choice that everybody has to somehow figure out on their own, but more that, that, that women really need to, to stop every once in a while and say, what do I really want to do with my life? What kind of impact do I want to have? I, I am no longer forced uh, to stay at home and not have a, a career life and a professional life and a working life. But because I have that opportunity, it really does behoove me to think hard about what I want to do with it.
0: And that's that balance that you talk about, about being aspirational at the same time one is realistic, not to feel compelled to check off every single proverbial box. That's
1: right. And and this is where, you know, I think just a good dose of, of realism and common sense is, is very very necessary here, you know, both for high school kids and for middle-aged women and, and for older women. Nobody can do everything. And so if you really want to take a, a new class and something exciting that, you know, will will capture your attention and will give you perhaps some professional advantage, that's great. Take the class, but then realize that you're going to have to take something else off of your weekly agenda. You know, maybe you're going to have less time to exercise or less time to, to cook home-cooked meals every night. And We need to make these choices consciously, and it's not about giving up or opting out or leaning out or or anything negative. It's just realizing that at some point the math takes over. There's only so many hours in a week, and if you're going to add something to that week, you're going to have to take something else out. Otherwise, you just wind up frazzled and exhausted and, quite frankly, not doing anything very well at all.
0: And what about the argument made by, by people like Oprah who say, yes, you can have it all, just not all at once?
1: Well, I think that's exactly right and I I think there's lots of different ways to think about all at once. All at once can be you, you have to do things sequentially over the course of your life. Um, it can also be you have to think more sequentially about the course of a week. You know, well, how much can you jam into one week, and and how much you, do you have to want to put off for another point in your life, or just not do it all? You know, I would have loved to have been a skydiver in my life, but you know, it's probably not going to happen, and I can you know I can probably uh, accept that and move on.
0: Somebody made the statement recently that has also been writing about these issues that that the goal is to simply have the same choices that men do. Do you think that that's true?
1: Well, this is where it gets complicated. And, and I do think this is perhaps not so much a mistake feminism made, but, but maybe a, a, a shift of perception that, that went a little too far it's crucially important for women to have the same opportunities as men. And I think we're getting pretty close to that. But we can't neglect biology in all of this because women – Even if we get them equal to men, women are not the same as men. There are are core biological differences. And I think we may have gone a little too far in forgetting about these things because women clearly are going to have the babies and men won't. Um, And unless our technology starts advancing much (laughs) faster, we're never going to get to a point where men are physically delivering and nursing babies. And that's a big deal. And it's not just a six-week big deal or even a six-month big deal. And, and we know this statistically. The point at which women's careers really start to differ from men's is when they become mothers. And, you know, we just need to be more honest in dealing with this fact. And most organizations today have done a pretty good job, uh, still not as good as they could, but a pretty good job about dealing with maternity leaves. But they're very short-term. What organizations haven't fully incorporated yet is parenthood. Uh, which affects clearly both men and women, but it does fall differently on women. But organizations also um, are sort of uh, coy in, in terms of dealing with sexuality in the workplace. Uh, women, particularly young women, are seen as sexual objects. Um, they're, they're looked at differently than men are, um, and that affects their lives in the workplace um, differently. And we we need to sort of get over some of our our. prudishness, to be honest, in dealing with what remains a very real fact of young women's working lives.
0: As we try to address all of these issues, what percentage of them, roughly, are things that we can address within the context of public policy decisions versus what we have to deal with as a culture?
1: Well, I think it's a little bit, or perhaps even a lot, of both. Um, I think it's very tempting to say we need better Uh, child care and better workplace policy and more subsidies for working families. All of those things are true, and I wish we had them. But sadly, right now, we have a a Congress that can't even pass a budget (laughs) as of today. So to sort of just wait and hope that we will get Scandinavian-style social policies, I think is unrealistic. So much as I would like to push for a policy solution, I'm just not at all optimistic about that happening. So while we're holding out for those policy solutions, I think we need to be working at the workplace. And, and this really involves particularly, I think, women being a bit more upfront in telling the men who still run most workplaces, what is it that will make their lives easier? Um, how can we actually get family policies that, that work? Because generally I think what happens is women sort of talk about this stuff quietly And men go off and do do their other business, and we, we actually don't get the conversations going. So I think there's a workplace piece in addition to the government piece. And then what you know, a lot of what I'm arguing in the book is we need to make adjustments on the home front, because whereas the workplace has changed pretty dramatically over the past 50 years in terms of opening up to women, even if not yet fully or on fully equal terms, we've seen less. Development on the home front. So, women and men do still tend to fall into fairly traditional roles in terms of household responsibilities. And that's the piece that's really, I think, falling particularly hard on women. And I don't think it's because men are being bad. I just think, you know, if we cut ourselves all some slack, we've really upturned the social order in 50 years. We've upturned centuries and centuries of tradition and historical patterns. It's going to take us a little while to figure out what the new patterns are going to look like. And and I think, you know, the millennials are really thinking hard about this i've been delighted when I give book talks at how many young men come to the talks and raise their hands and, and and raise good questions, but we really need to rethink the home front which which is which will entail things like how we deal with extended families. you know one of the problems Americans face is we live too far away from our extended families, so when life gets complicated, we don 't have the support network that many other societies still have. Um, we have schools that um, have not yet really adjusted to the fact that most parents are working. So schools will send out their calendars, you know, a day before there's some crucial ballet recital. And that's very hard for working parents. So I think every piece of society really has some role to play in this. So it's not just government policy or just the workplace or just the home front. It's really making small but important steps across all of these dimensions.
0: Aren't men learning more about this and these problems and these issues we've been talking about from seeing it in their own families and seeing it with their wives and and the women that that they come in contact with?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And and, I have to say in my own life... all of the men I know who are running large corporations or organizations, they understand these problems. They've seen their wives struggle with them. They've seen their sisters struggle with them. And I think most poignantly, they've seen their daughters struggle with them. And I, you know, some of the most supportive people that I know in terms of, of women's professional development are dads who really want their daughters to succeed, and they they really understand how hard it is. So one of the things I'm arguing quite forcefully in the book is we really need to bring men into the conversation here. And I understand why early feminism had to see men as the enemy, because that was where we were historically. But we've moved beyond that point now, and I think we really are at a point now where men want to be helpful. They want to help move the needle. They just don't necessarily know how to do that.
0: The other part of it is that it is a very different world that we live in. It is one that, that is much more interdependent than, than that world in the 70s and 80s, both in the workplace and in the social order.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And we also, uh, you know, particularly out in your part of the world, um, we've seen a massive explosion of technologies, many of which actually I think can be incredibly helpful in allowing us to combine our work and family lives in ways that we couldn't when going to work meant getting in a car and driving to a major office plaza and clocking in an 8- or 10-hour day. So we do live in a more seamless world, but our, our work patterns haven't yet fully adopted this changing
0: structure. And, right, of course, there's been all this controversy around people working at home, even in the technology area
1: yeah and i you know I think these are to some extent growing pains um and i you know, it's hard for me to imagine right now that we could send everybody home and let them work in their pajamas that's That's not going to work in all industries, tempting though it may be, but I do think we have to be a little bit more experimental um trying new structures and again, I think your part of the world is really leading the way here in in thinking about new ways of of restructuring not just the work day but how one evaluates work. Uh, work performance, how one evaluates teamwork and collaboration, it's going to take a while. This is all still quite new, but there are a number of firms out there that really are being quite innovative.
0: And do you think, finally, that we're beginning to see in the popular culture images that break away from those 70 images we talked about earlier that deal with the mythology of perfection? Are we seeing real-life examples in the popular culture of how this is being dealt with?
1: You know, sadly, no. And I think this is one of the more depressing things. If you just watch, you know, mainstream television, mainstream movies, we are still seeing, I would argue, even more exaggerated examples of successful women who look like models and are always sexy and are always uh, you know dealing with dealing with the work family thing in ways that might be sort of cutely stressful but 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 wind up being being solved. I think one of the one of the the only shows that's really breaking out of this mold is girls, which has become Mm -hmm. of course quite a phenomenon in that it, it, it does show I think a more realistic uh, portrayal of young women who kind of look like real young women and and, and uh, have messier lives. So I'd, I'd say girls is a good step in the right direction, but in general, and again, it's understandable, we all like watching you know uh, beautiful people prance across our screens, um, but I don't think we're, we're seeing any kind of dramatic change in how women are portrayed. And if you look at the world of pop music, which of course is another major influence mm. in young people's lives, I would argue that we've actually gone the other direction that, whereas men pop stars are allowed just to be talented, uh, female pop stars have to be both talented and incredibly sexualized and incredibly beautiful. And, you know, that's a small part of our overall society, but but I think it's an important one to call out.
0: Quickly, why do you think that's happened? Why have we gone backwards in that area? Do you have any sense of that? You know,
1: I don't know. I, you know, I wish I had a good answer for that. Um, but it's we've you know we've just rushed more and more towards embracing these sort of hypersexualized, um, hyperfeminine um, versions of, of young women, and hopefully
0: we'll start to see the pendulum moving back in the other direction. Deborah Spar, the book is Wonder Women: Sex, Power, and the Quest for Perfection. Deborah, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It
1: was a great pleasure. Thank you
0: so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.